I think we've forgotten, especially if we're professing Christ, that kindness is a fruit of the spirit. And so tucked within it is this power and a, um, a marker of who God is. And so we've kind of reduced it to how can I in my own strength be nice to someone else? Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. We know these are complex times to lead in. These are painful times to lead in. These are uncertain times to lead in. And so just so you know, when we record these podcasts, we don't come from an expert perspective. We come from fellow practitioners, fellow strugglers, and this is a hard moment to lead through. And we want to be a place of refuge here on this podcast for you to have hard conversations, maybe spur on hard conversations, and you to hear the overflow of our hard conversations. So with that said, we want to continue to bring you podcasts every Tuesday and Thursday. We're going to continue to talk about real things that deeply matter. So with that said, welcome back to the podcast. David, it's great to talk to you, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about this episode. Yeah, this um, is so interesting how we record uh, these in advance. And this recorded in advance is a literal podcast on kindness. I don't know that there's something else that I've heard more about recently. I mean, maybe other than just the Corona word, the C word right now, other than uh, pivot, change, adapt, I mean, the last few months. But recently, I've been hearing this phrase, be kind to yourself, be as kind to yourself as God is to you, being kind to others. And there's just a massive gap of unkindness that's happening on social media that is just driving me crazy. And is it grieves me. It's so unfortunate that people feel like, well, just because I'm not actually talking face to face, I'm going to rip them a new one on my uh, belief on this idea or this idea, this cultural reality is happening right now. Um, so David, talk just a little bit about that massive topic of kindness. What are you seeing right now in this moment? Well, I just preached on a, a sermon that was talking about biblical wisdom. And what I've been struck by is how powerful words are. We, I don't know if you were raised with this phrase, but sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Or I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. That sounds good. And it's a pretty good comeback for you know, little kids on the playground, but it's not biblical at all. In fact, and it's biblical completely untrue. Like it yeah. is words. We will remember them years and years and years later. Like they can singe us to the core. So not only is it not biblical, it's not even true. Yeah. Because words can go where sticks and stones can't, which is your heart, your identity. Um, and so in the church, I don't know if we've hitched ourselves to this weird wagon of like political correctness and all sorts of things. It's, it's weird. And, and sometimes we hitch ourselves to conservative ideas that just aren't biblical, that our words matter deeply. They are so powerful. And so we need to, you know, as, as, fo as followers of Jesus, we need to take them incredibly seriously because the biblical authors take them incredibly seriously. So kindness is this, it's this com commitment to, to taking our words seriously and filtering them through a gospel lens and a kingdom lens. And so I think our culture needs that absolutely from leaders um, and just from everyday followers of Jesus. So super important topic. And everybody's exhausted right now. And I think when we're exhausted, we get 
um, I don't know, we lose that filter some. And I think right now people are exhausted from disappointment upon disappointment. And then not only after coronavirus and as we sort of have re-entry happening and the different views on all of that, we're already tired, more atrocities atop atrocities. And obviously people of color have been way more affected than, than you and I. And, and this is tiring for my heart and my soul. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a, a person of color. And Ashley Island is on the podcast today. Her book, Humankind, uh, is one of those that is sort of prophetically written into the moment. Obviously, God knew when this would launch and, and release, but we need kindness in our world today. And I, I think in this moment, it's especially important. Um, Ashley comes from the perspective of being an African-American female. She's a leader within the church. She's a teacher and a pastor, and one that really just opens up her heart in this book and in this interview as well. She shares the good and the hard of, of how she grew up. And this was especially important to me, my wife and daughter are reading this, and to think about raising an African-American daughter, um, I want her to understand uh, some of the challenges and, and some of the joys, the tensions that she's living in. So for me, just as a father, this spoke deeply to my heart, and it felt very personal to me. This is a great interview, and um, I, I absolutely loved it. And so Ashley, really, um, she's an incredible leader, but I just admire this straight up and honest person that, that she is. So I love this conversation. We are talking about kindness, something that is deeply and dearly needed in our world today. So enjoy my conversation with teacher, author, pastor, and speaker, Ashley Island. Ashley, thanks for coming by the podcast today. Alan, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. So I just finished up your book. Congratulations. It dropped in April, Humankind, How Reclaiming Human Worth and Embracing Radical Kindness Will Bring Us Back Together. Uh, congrats. You did it. You birthed a book out into the world. Thank you. It feels like my fourth child is finally yeah, a, available. <laughs> people who have not written a book do not know the labor of love that it is and how it sort of brings life to us and beats life out of us all at the same time. And uh, congratulations. I loved reading through it. And honestly, I felt like it was just very human. Some of the themes that you dealt with, most of the themes that you dealt with are just universal to the human experience. We just don't talk about them. And uh, so thank you for that. This book really is a gift. And um, just an interesting time um, amidst COVID and just the complexities of the season, I think, to be writing about kindness. We see a lot of unkindness out there in the world. Uh, one scroll through Facebook real quick, and you'll see that. But give us a snapshot um, before we talk about this theme here. Give us a snapshot of the different leadership roles that you lead in, the ages of your kids, some of the dynamics or context you're writing this from. Great. Yeah. So I'd say the first and most dominant context that comes to mind is my leadership as a mom. Um, especially now that we are home and operating and educating out of our home, it feels like mom is the chief leadership title, and I'm learning so much about what that means in this season. But also, I am a pastor, and I am a daughter and a friend um, and a writer and helping form and um, offer people avenues to get back to the well, if you will. And so that's much of my work, um, whether it's through parenthood or as a pastor, 
here in Grand Rapids, it's really pointing people back to the depths of abundant life found in Jesus. And whether that's in the context of our home or on virtual church platforms or in conversations with neighbors and friends, it feels like that's the work right now in leadership. And that's where this book is finding a really interesting place in all of those contexts. Uh, so well said. I'm, I'm curious, um, obviously, with this season and stay at home and parenting, just like going into HD as an educator and all of that uh, at home, what have been the deep struggles of this season? And then what have been some of the great joys for your family and you as a leader in this season? Oh, we could spend the entire podcast on this. But in terms of struggle, you know, I never anticipated being at home full time with my children. Um, I've worked full time ever since I entered the workforce. My first job was in corporate America before transitioning to the vocational ministry space. And so I did not ever think that some of my most meaningful informative work would be as a mom with all three of my kids uh, 24 seven. And so I have a five year old, a four year old and a 17 month old, and they're not yet sufficient enough to play and learn on their own and explore on their own without hurting themselves or potentially finding themselves in some yeah. trouble. And so the work right now and the struggle has been tending to my own soul and my heart and my marriage. Um, I'm married to an amazing man who's also a worship pastor at our church. And so we're both working full time um, and tending to those things while also being fully present and attentive to what my kids need, both in a practical way and in a more spiritual and mental and emotional sense. Um, that's been a, a very interesting tension, and we've had to do a hard left turn on some rhythms that were working for us in the past season to figure out what still works well now. Um, and there's some days where it feels like, yep, we figured it out today, and others where it just feels like a big fat F in red pen on the edge of the page because it, it feels like we didn't do it, you know? Um, and it feels like I, I met the the bottom of my depravity as a mom <laughs> and yep. I'm having to uh, pick myself back up sometimes at five o'clock in the morning, depend, depending on who's up first to meet a new fresh day. And so that's been a struggle. Um, finding space. I, I'm finding that I'm running into a lot of my idols in this season where I've um, lifted personal space as an idol and worshiped at the altar of um, me time and really letting those go and um, re-surrendering those um, to Christ have been hard. Um, just, just meeting my own brokenness in this season has been really hard. But on the other end, I'd say there's been so much joy and consolation in the extra time. And not just in getting to do what we want as a family, like we're going on walks every day if it's nice outside. We are playing in the backyard. We, we have a little sand pit and a trampoline and seeing our kids explore. We're raising butterflies right now. So finding awe and wonder in some really small moments has been such a gift. And seeing my kids develop and grow in ways that I probably wouldn't have otherwise if they were in traditional school hours, Monday to Friday. So I'm seeing our 17-month-old figure out how to move around and what she's getting into and what she's interested in. But I'm also seeing our older kids work out conflict together and love each other really well and be generous and honest and um, bring up 
conversations about what they're interested in. And so it's both ends of the spectrum. And it feels like in any given hour, I'm experiencing all of it. Um, And so part of the overall marker of the season is holding both at all times. And that has been such an interesting experience for me. Everyone listening to this who's a parent is just nodding along at the good, the hard, everything in between. So thanks for that, Ashley. So you wrote your story through the lens or the theme of kindness or unfortunately the lack thereof, many of your stories that you bring up. Um, But I'm curious, what are the misconceptions of kindness right now in our culture? I think there are a couple of big ones. The first that pops to mind in that I believe I mentioned in the book is that kindness isn't about reducing our interactions with each other to mere niceness, to nice gestures. Um, I think we've forgotten, especially if we're professing Christ, that kindness is a fruit of the spirit. And so tucked within it is this power and a, um, a marker of who God is. And so we've kind of reduced it to how can I in my own strength be nice to someone else? How far does that actually get us? So that's that's the first one. The second one is that it's it's easy. <laughs> I, I actually think kindness is one of the hardest virtues um, that we can receive for ourselves and then send out into the world because in its folds are sacrifice and risk. Um, and there are a couple of passages that have helped me kind of see those two more clearly. But kindness isn't this virtue that, you know, is kind of nice and it's only attributed to the likes of the Mr. Rogers and the Mother Teresas of the world. Like, it's not just for the people who are really, really good at being nice to other people. Um, it's, it's an everyday gift that's, that we have at our disposal. And it's really, really powerful, but it requires a lot of us. And so I just think that most of what we're seeing in culture is this call to a kindness that is diluted um, and that requires only minimal effort and that has minimal impact. Um, but the kind of kindness that I'm exploring through the narratives in this book is a kind of kindness that's transformative and it's an all-in kind of, um, of attempt at wholeness and humanity. So those are just a couple. I think there are a few more as well, but those are the big ones that that I've been seeing um, in the past season of our cultural moment and that I'm projecting we'll see uh, going into the future. Yeah, so, so well said. Ashley, you describe kindness as the secret weapon for detecting the intrinsic worth found in every person. Can you c- connect the dots a little bit between kindness and worth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's interesting, so I have this three-part framework on kindness, and it's an upward direction where we look at kindness as a part of who God is and God's character, and then inward and and how we receive kindness for ourselves, and then missional kindness, how we go outwardly into the world. What's interesting about God's kindness is that it exists as a perpetual care for his people. So even if you look at the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, the people of God had absolutely been unrepentant. They'd been worshiping at the altars of false gods. And there's a part in that narrative where it says God leads his people by the cords of kindness. And he essentially restores a humaneness back upon the people. 
And so kindness really um, defines, redefines, and reflects um, who we are at our very core as being made in the image and likeness of God. And it's restorative. God says, I've made you in my image and likeness. I've called you very good. And my work is to call you perpetually through my care and steadfast love into wholesome, um, transformative relationship with me. And so therefore, our call is to do that um, between God and us, uh, with ourselves, and then with the rest of the world. So it's, it's a secret weapon because it, it's, um, it originates with God. And it's part of how God has extended God's self to us um, in the good news. So it, it's, um, it's a call to re-engage and reclaim what I think has been lost in our culture. And that is regardless of what our differing opinions might be, our different viewpoints or lifestyles might reflect. There is an inherent worth defined by God that's worthy of being maintained and reclaimed. And there, it's interesting, you, you were talking about um, receiving kindness, and I'm hearing a resurgence yeah. of that recently, of mm-hmm. be kind to yourself. And I think maybe it started as kind of in the Christian sphere, maybe it felt like a really woo-woo thing, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as self-care maybe felt that way five or 10 years ago. And we've realized, oh my goodness, we really need to um, head back into this area. Maybe we call it self-kindness or receiving kindness again. Um, and so can can you just dig down on that a little bit? What's the link between unkindness to ourselves or not receiving the kindness of God and unfortunately kind of spitting that back out on other people? Yes. I had a, a huge aha moment with this, Alan, where um, I was reading in Ephesians 4, And in Ephesians 4, there's part of the text where uh, it says that the the Gentiles weren't stepping into the life of God because of something very specific. Um, It was because of the hardness of their hearts. So Paul is talking about calloused hearts. (laughs) And then later on in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tender hearted. That's the key word, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So for me, this idea of self-care, self-kindness, whatever we want to call it right now, has to do with the condition of our hearts. It's a heart condition. And my my caution and my my thought here for our current moment, and what I'm a little concerned about, is that chaos and turmoil has such um, a great opportunity to harden our hearts. Talk more about this that. Is, why why does yeah. that why does that do that? I absolutely agree, but but drill down yeah. on that a little bit. Yeah. I think it's because in, in a moment like this one, we're trying to figure out where we stand and if we're okay. Like are we safe? <laughs> like are yeah. our livelihoods safe? Are our rhythms safe? Are our kids safe? Um, are we safe in, in terms of our mental health? Are you know, are we secure? I think that's a huge question that Lots of people are asking on both a familial and like a national global level. Um, And so when our safety is threatened, um, we have a couple of instincts. You know, we either kind of hunker down and self-protect and say, you know, no matter what, I'm going to make sure that I and my entire family, we're okay. I'm going to make sure I'm okay. 
by any means necessary. Or we get really scared and um, we kind of run metaphorically. Um, and so in this fight or flight response, it's like, what, what is our heart doing? Uh, in essence, what I, I believe could happen is that our hearts become so hard that we're not able to receive um, kindness, love, um, the kind of radical grace and mercy on behalf of who God is as gifts to us because we're so self-interested. <laughs> we're like, okay, something's not working, so let me go ahead and figure this out for myself. Um, and that's that's dangerous, I'd say, because uh, it impacts our ability to be tender-hearted, not just to receiving God's love for us and being reassured um, by His steadfast love. Um, but that ultimately impacts our ability to be others-focused and to extend any kind of tenderheartedness or forgiveness or um, radical acts of, of love and neighborliness to other people. If we can't receive that for ourselves because our own heart's conditions are so hard, then there's no way in the world we're going to be able to identify with or empathize with um, someone else or even desire to enter into a listening posture to understand someone else better. Um, so really, this, this idea of, hey, you got to put your own mask on first, like if you're on an airplane and you, you need some oxygen, you need to be able to receive kindness in order to give it away. Um, and that's, that's part of the relationship here that I think as leaders and as parents as human beings, we need to maintain is that we cannot be effective long-term, you know, operating in good soil if we're not able to tend to the states of our own hearts and in our own souls. Mm, yeah, it, it feels really timely, actually, when your book came out. Obviously, uh, none of us would have predicted a global pandemic and really the social chaos around that, right? And the self-protection and all the things you just described. Um, but man, there's a lot of unkindness out there right now that people are flinging yes. at one another. That's probably a reaction, right, to the chaos of our hearts and souls and minds and families. And um, just interesting hearing people, everybody seems to have been verbally assaulted in some way for doing really nothing out of the ordinary uh, because the anger is just coming out right now at this stage um, of of where we're at. And so I, I just think it's really timely, Ashley. Um, I don't know that I've read a book on kindness, and I think that it was incredibly helpful for me to think about sort of those micro actions in my life. Um, how do those speak to others and even accepting kindness? Um, but man, I'll, I'll be honest, I was gripped by the part of your book talking about Charlottesville and the atrocities that happened there. Um, I actually grew up in Charlottesville, and I found oh, myself wow. incredibly confused. I mean, I took graduation pictures after baccalaureate right next to um, that part. I mean, in that park where the statue's at, I walked past it dozens of times. It was just part mm. of life as a kid, you know, growing up in the South. And so I found myself incredibly confused after that season. And even seeing people who I had grown up with speaking into that saying, this is not, you know, from our city, from our town, this has sort of happened in. And I was, you know, there was so much chaos going on in my mind and heart. And so when you talked about that, share some of your feelings, emotions, um, anger after that moment, 
and then how you decided to act that out locally in your place. Yeah, well, I have to first kind of describe the context of where we were living at the time. Um, we were li- living in a really quiet, almost river town in the northwest suburbs of Chicagoland at the time. And after Charlottesville happened, um, like immediately I go into um, self-protection mode because I am raising a, a black son. I'm, ra- I'm raising two black daughters. Uh, my husband's black. And so to see um, kind of this tension between people who are called to protect and to serve and, and then others who have been largely marginalized and um, on the receiving end of systemic oppression, it, it just broke my heart because one, I felt helpless, but two, I found myself really scared. Um, the neighborhood we were in at the time was a majority white neighborhood. And not long after Charlottesville happened, we saw Confederate flags pop up left and right. And my husband would be out for a run and just come home and report about a new flag that showed up in someone's yard. Mm. Um, and regardless of what that flag meant for different people or for individuals, for us, it, it was a reason to be extremely cautious and inspired a bit of fear in me. But, but this fear for me was paralyzing. And even though I have law enforcement in our family, we have friends who are law enforcement, um, I found myself becoming really timid and tentative. And I, I noticed that the state of my soul was one in which I wasn't able to dream. I wasn't able to um, envision like a hopeful future beyond this. I felt really stuck. And so um, in one of my quiet times, I just said, hey, like, God, you know, I, I'm being run, run by fear right now. Like fear is absolutely running me. And um, in this state of paralysis, it just felt like, okay, then actually fear not. And the one thing that I could think of to do, the one way that I've consistently found in helping me resist fear, especially in the context of human relationship, has been to intentionally enter into proximity. And that sometimes is very scary and very risky, and sometimes does not make sense to other people at all. (laughs) And so um, I did, I I reached out to local law enforcement in our neighborhood, and I just invited whoever was off duty um, to our house. My daughter and I made cookies, which seemed so underwhelming at the time. I'm like, really, Ashley, <laughs> like you're going to offer these folks cookies and some, some lemonade and, and think that's going to be okay. But, but beyond the, the snacks that were offered, um, these two officers showed up at our house and we had this short, but really meaningful conversation. And we didn't walk away best friends, but to hear, Hey, how is this impacting you? How is this current moment in our culture impacting you as a law enforcement agent? Um, and for the officers to be interested in our experience, but that did something. What it did, it, it disarmed this, um, it disarmed these stories that were forming in my head. And it gave me just enough of an interruption to resist the really harmful impact of potentially demonizing or um, dehumanizing another person. 
And to be honest with you, it's so easy to do in the context of, yeah. you know, yep. racial tension, cultural tension. So easy to go from scared to hate. Um, and it felt like for me in that moment that it was so necessary and it taught me so much about um, in the face of fear, the healing and transformative power of proximity in a moment that probably would have otherwise left me paralyzed and overly cautious and unnecessarily um, unnecessarily uh, hating two of my brothers, you know? So that, that moment, you know, I still wrestle with that to some degree because the work isn't done in kind of the macro healing of some systemic injustices we're seeing in our nation. Um, and so there's still ways that, you know, I, I should be leaning in and raising my voice around some really unkind things that we're seeing. But for that moment, in order to get me unstuck, Alan, it was important for me to, to be proximate to my own context and, and to an environment that I operated within each and every day. Yes. That's like the neighborhood is the great equalizer and our kids right. school and the person next door and what they're actually thinking in the midst of an election or what they're actually thinking in the midst of an atrocity or uh, I've just sensed a deep openness to people to go to soul level, like right at the first shot of just, you know, Hey, how are you holding up? How's your mental health? I mean, those are not conversations. That's not a good conversation starter before Corona, but afterwards I've just right. felt like kind of heart checks. We just go deep quickly because we're all wrestling through something right now. Um, and so, yes, I agree. Proximate, proximate, proximate. Um, I loved your connection between fighting for equality and fighting for honor. What are a few mm -hmm. ways as followers of Jesus, we can help to honor others? So honor at the, at the heart of honor is this intentionality to call out the value of one's life and how we are bearing witness to the work of God in and through that life. And so, you know, I think it requires Paying honor requires paying attention, <laughs> and um, it's really a regular practice of gratitude, kind of tucked within uh, honor giving. So to say, you know what, your life has had this sort of impact, whether it's on me as an individual or on a community or in a wider kind of legacy. Um, honor requires that we've paid attention and have received the impact of that person's life. Um, and so in spaces where like injustice is happening or we're seeing uh, opportunities for reconciliation, um, giving honor requires that we, we see people on any side of an issue, of a conversation, of um, a moment, to say, even if I disagree, or even if there's been harm done, what is it that I can say yes and amen to in the positive consequences of that person's life? Um, and it's a discipline. I think giving honor away and paying honor to a person or a group of people is an underrepresented discipline in our 
in our day and age, um, whether yeah. that's to our parents or to our friends, um, whether it's to our spouse or, or even to our kids. I think if we can pay honor on purpose, we can call our hearts and our souls back to the very good in those people that was instilled and imparted to them by God himself. And so it's, um, it's interesting. I think there are a few, there are a few holidays that we orient our honor around, but I think honor is a, a really cool discipline to engage on a daily basis. And it helps remind us in, in the way of gratitude of the impact that someone's life has made on us or our surroundings. Well, friends, if you're listening to this, you've survived. You survived a crazy season of life and leadership. What's clear to me right now is we are in the wilderness. We've gone off the path and we are bushwhacking through the wilderness, trying to find trails and asking, what is ahead? What is this new different that we are stepping into in late summer and fall and beyond? And truthfully, we don't know. We don't know how this thing is going to move and what decisions we're going to have to make. But I will tell you this, it will require strong leadership. It will require decisions of you that you haven't made before. And I want to walk alongside of you in your leadership journey. I call myself a mountain guide for the leadership journey. And guys, as you navigate the wilderness, let me remind you, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Me and our other Stay Forth coaches are here to help you as you navigate these treacherous times as we head into the great unknown. Whether you are a business leader, a ministry leader, nonprofit leader, pastor, if you are a kingdom leader, you're going to continue to have to navigate tough decisions. Now, I know that coaching can be expensive to invest in our 10 tools and 10 sessions coaching process, but we've created an alternative for you that's a coaching subscription. You can pay on a monthly basis. We have a basic plan and a hearty plan. I'll walk alongside of you with regular coaching sessions, check-ins over the phone, and in-time decision-making. You know that decision that you have to make that week and you're feeling the pressure of? How good would it feel to have somebody in your corner to help you make those decisions? Also have some communication with you on Marco Polo for those back and forth in between. So we believe that this can help us care for leaders even better in this season to help you make your next right step and for us to be a little bit more accessible than just a call every week or every other week. So this coaching subscription, you can find out more about this. It's got a easy price point, honestly, a great entry point for coaching. It's not right for everybody, but some of you listening could gain so much from this coaching subscription as we continue to navigate the wilderness heading into the fall. Check out more on this at stayforth.com backslash coaching. Again, check out our coaching subscription. Spots are limited, but I would love to walk alongside of you in your leadership journey. In your story, Ashley, I heard third culture kid. And you're describing mm -hmm. it, obviously, if, if you're listening to this, read the book, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you're describing not really fitting within black culture and not really fitting within white culture and some of the dynamics of that, which is incredibly helpful to me. Um, and I'm raising two adopted kids and two biological kids. And I'm very well aware they're growing up as third culture kids. So can mm -hmm. you give me some guidance right now as a parent? I mean, I'm, I'm open and humbly asking, um, how can I help them navigate this reality? 
Oh, that's so good. Um, thanks for inviting me into that kind of guidance. I, what's interesting is this third culture conversation can look so different. I mean, you talked about being from the South. That's a whole other cultural context to navigate. Um, yes, it is. When you, you know, when, when you look at, uh, you know, trying to understand one's whiteness or blackness, um, being in the Midwest now, that, that means something very different for me as an adult. But here's what's been helpful for me as I raise my kids too, um, because we have two biological kids and our youngest is adopted as well. Um, there is a culture that we are creating inside our home that is absolutely marked for the better by our kids' existence. And I feel like my job as a parent is to affirm and to call out the ways in which my kids are shaping and forming the culture of our home and our family and having that be a dominant thread by which my kids are identifying um, now, for outward culture, you know, where we see these dichotomies at, pl at play, where, you know, people want to know, what kind of person are you? <laughs> they they want to know when it comes to the, the larger cultural brushes that are, are painted, where do you fit in? I feel like as a parent, my job is to name those to help my kids understand where those come from, um, the historical nature of of those cultural boundaries. And then to say, um, in some ways you will have to navigate this. And in some ways it's not fair at all because we are all moving in a unique and individual way throughout life. Um, and we've been given ind individual stories and skills and talents to steward. Um, so what are those? And then how will those impact the way that you navigate the outward culture? Um, so that's where I, I kind of wish I had more handles as a kid on like, what are those cultural landmines? Where did they come from? What's true about them? And what's inherently false? Like what's not real mm. um, in the ways in which I'm trying to define myself? Like my worth isn't rooted in the way someone else defines whiteness or blackness. That's not true. Now my experience in navigating those definitions will absolutely be impacted based on the spaces I find myself in. Now, and what do I do about that? You know, that's where it's helpful to have conversations um, with adults or, or for kids who are listening with your parents about like, okay, what does that mean for me? Um, but I think what I'm finding so much joy and solace in now as someone who had to navigate those cultures and, and was a third culture kid in some ways is in my own home redefining what's true and having this be the dominant culture in which my kids are seeing themselves um, in, in mirrors and um, an understanding of who they are and who God's created them to be. Um, so yeah, it's for me, you know, for parents listening, it's helping our kids understand that multiple cultures exist and then giving them the tools to navigate those and then calling out what's true versus untrue about the reasons why we need to navigate them and the realities of, of what that means for their lives. That's, that's helpful. And actually, I mean, it, that, that brings me hope because especially my wife is incredibly adept at doing that and bringing 
um, you know, these conversations to the surface, uh, especially mm-hmm. as we think about, you know, my daughter navigating teen years, my son heading into the teen years, who the world expects them to be, maybe who the culture of their school expects them to be. We talk about these a lot at home. And so that's actually affirming in terms of what you're, what you're saying. Let's talk about the role of silence. This is one that um, you talked about uh, spaces and places, hard ones in the book that you chose to uh, remain silent and even the strength in that. And right now Mm -hmm. there's this gap and this tension between silence and speaking out on social media and in conversation recently with uh, the Ahmad Arbery story um, coming yes. back out in the the rage, the outrage um, that 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 rightfully brought. Can you help us navigate, especially someone who is a white person seeing an injustice uh, on a screen, a person mm-hmm. of color? Can you give me give me some guardrails? Give us listeners some guardrails on when silence is a gift, when speaking up is a gift, and and how to navigate and discern that space between. So this is interesting because um, silence as a spiritual discipline sometimes does not serve the body of Christ well when it comes to justice and reconciliation. And I think sometimes the lines can be blurred because Silence is one of my favorite spiritual disciplines. I mean, it's where I'm able to kind of discern the state of my own heart and soul. It's where I'm able to hear from God with more clarity. But then there comes a point at which something needs to be said. And um, the question that I'd, I'd pose to anyone listening right now, especially my white brothers and sisters, is um, what platform have you, have you been given? What disproportionate amount of influence have you been given? And it doesn't have to necessarily be in the larger context of like a global platform. Maybe it's the platform of your organization or of your own home even. Um, but what messages or what um, injustices have been allowed to live on because of your silence? And, and that's, that's a really hard question to wrestle with. It's really good. Um, because sometimes speaking up um, in the way of unkindness or systemic injustice has allowed injustices to be perpetuated, but silence has also done that as well. Um, I'll tell you what, a lot of my friends are dedicating their lives to the spaces of justice and reconciliation in a really God-honoring and and biblical way. Um, But what I'm finding, especially now, as someone who's leading in in the church space, is that, um, like, quite frankly and quite honestly, I'm I'm tired. (laughs) As a woman of color, I'm so tired because it's not just about, like, a hashtag or tweet. Um, I've, I've told some of my friends, like, this is my daily life that I'm navigating. And, um, there've just been, it's just incessant. And so for me, justice and reconciliation isn't, isn't a fad. It's a, it's a, it's a life. And, um, so it's so helpful and so encouraging when I know that, uh, my white brothers and sisters are stepping in the gap to say things that people of color, especially have been saying for so long in a way that helps not just transform people's minds, that helps bring light and movement to systems that are impacting some of what we're seeing 
in our current day and age. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, it, it can be paralyzing, you know, when we see something like what has happened to Ahmaud Arbery or Brie Taylor. Um, if you look at uh, just the impact of social media on those stories, it's been huge. Like there's been so much that's come to light because of social media. But my encouragement would be to not stop there. To say, okay, put the phone down, put the laptop down, and to really take stock, um, whether that's through journaling or some other way that you're capturing um, kind of your personal commitment and involvement in the work of God's justice and reconciliation to say, no, what are my actual spheres of influence? And there may be only a couple. And I'd say to you, those couple spheres of influence are important ones. They're, they're not small. They mean a lot. So if it's your family and your workspace, then to say, what has my um, disproportionate amount of influence been in those spaces? Okay, I'm, I'm the president. I'm the CEO. I'm an administrator. I'm a parent. Okay, as a parent, what does it look like to talk to your teenagers about injustice in America today? As a president or CEO, look at your policies, look at your um, procedures to say where has injustice been allowed to linger, even in the folds of how we do business, even if we're in a helping organization. Um, where is there a disproportionate amount of, of power or structural injustice kind of tucked into the folds and then be willing to listen um, and to pay attention to perhaps how other people are bringing some of those things up and by other people into the conversation. So, you know, sometimes this can be super overwhelming because it seems like this is now national news and what I can't do anything about it. I can repost, I can go for a two mile run. I can put a hashtag, you know, somewhere on Instagram, but then it actually has to look, make our lives look different in real time. And that's, that's what I'd encourage in terms of a next step. Um, to resist and avoid silence taking a negative toll on the larger body of Christ. That's really helpful. I'm curious. Um, it's a strange thing to write your story down in a book, right? There's people who, you know, <laughs> have not met you, will not meet you, and yet know, right. you know, about your hair and your school. And, yes. you know, you describe and write, you know, so, so well your story. What do you hope people experience when they read your story? I hope people either find some resonance with um, not even necessarily my story, but the idea of story and narrative at large. Um, the reason why I chose to write the book in the format that I did is because I feel like we've lost the reverence for each other's stories. Stories are powerful. I mean, that's how the good news has been communicated, us th communicated to us through the Holy Scriptures is through story and through narrative. And I'm just hoping that as we move into this election cycle this year, as we move out of certain parts and stages of this coronavirus, that we are called not to hustle more or to produce more even necessarily in in good ways, um, in helpful ways. I hope we are called to re-engage one another's stories again. Um, because I truly do think that stories keep our hearts tender. 
and tender hearts have such great possibility to um, transmit and transfer God's kindness to a really broken world. Um, So I hope we become great story receivers and storytellers and can recapture one another's humanity again. Well, you wrote it so well and so profoundly, and that's going to be a gift uh, to many. I'm sure it already has been. Last question we we always ask with the context of we are crazy enough to believe that you could actually live and lead for the long haul without losing your soul in this thing called leadership, in the stresses, the complexities uh, of leadership, but we need some healthy practices in there. So what practices help you stay healthy as a human, as a mom, and as a leader? Yep. Two that I've gone to, oh, three actually, that I've done almost every day since um, this particular season started. The first one is 10 minutes of silence in the morning. Um, It used to be longer. And then, you know, I found myself at home with all three kids. And so um, one, silence. It helps me really understand what's beneath the surface of my soul. If there's anxiety there or fear there or weariness. Um, and if I know what's in my heart and soul, I can surrender that more honestly to Christ. Um, so silence. The second is gratitude. I've been keeping a gratitude journal and it's just a really thin book that I write in every night before I go to bed. Um, and it's typically three things. Some days it's more because I find I'm just overflowing with gratitude, but that helps me, um, keep cynicism and bitterness at bay. And it helps me re-engage even on the hardest days where there's been provision in life and goodness. And so especially now, like that's probably my favorite one is even if it's three things a day, stay grateful. Um, And then finally, it's just regular engagement in scripture. I'm finding that I need a wisdom beyond myself right now. So um, with as much education or experience as so many of us have, Um, How am I clinging to a wisdom and a discernment that's beyond me, that's really helping me navigate uncharted waters? Um, So those are the three practices right now that that are a must uh, in this season for me and that have helped um, me keep my my heart and my soul engaged and healthy, um, even in, in some turbulent times. Well, thanks for that. Ashley, thanks for your time today and for putting so much of your heart and soul into your book. We talked about her book, Humankind, today, how reclaiming human worth and embracing radical kindness will bring us back together. Thank you, Ashley. We appreciate you and continue to lead well in your family and beyond in this season. It was an honor, Alan. Thank you so much. As we close this podcast, I want to encourage you to Think of this time, even though it's chaotic and painful, as an opportunity to start developing healthy rhythms in our life. We've been given a completely new schedule, some maybe some margin that you didn't have before. You are now stuck with your family. And this is actually an opportunity to start developing some healthy rhythms in your life. And so I want to encourage you as you go about your days to start thinking about what are the ways that I can actually take advantage of this season to, to really build in healthy habits. Because it's takes about 30 days to develop a habit and we've been given that time whether we wanted it or not and so thanks for listening to the podcast and uh, we'll see you in the next episode